This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Not everything metal was created equal. What an ugly thing to say. The Metal Sucks Podcast. Shiggity Chuck and Godless attempt to bring order to chaos or just make stupid jokes about dumb people. Stupid. A person below normal intelligence. This is the Metal Sucks Podcast. Greetings and salutations, my yeah. fine metal friends. Welcome to another edition of the Metal Sucks Podcast. How the hell are you doing? I'm Chuck. And I'm Godless. And this is your weekly That's examination all of all things metal, the Metal Sucks Podcast. <laughs> Make sure that you are subscribed to this thing on Google, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. You can have it come directly to your device just by clicking that little subscribe button, and that way you don't have to worry about it. It comes right to your thing. And you know what? This is the podcast that's been making all those phones explode. That's what's crazy. Nobody told you that. It's so fucking hot that, boom, it just blows up. It's amazing. So, yeah, make sure that you uh, maybe leave us a review, a couple of stars, tell us that we suck. We'd appreciate that, too. And, of course, you can find us in other ways. Social media, I'm at Bearded Ape. I'm at Godless Speaks. Godless Speaks on Facebook and Spotify. I have been trying to Twitch, but my damn I, I need a new video card for my damn computer, so that's, <laughs> I can't even get into that. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Chuck and Godless, also uh, Patreon.com/slash Chuck and Godless or ChuckandGodless.com if you'd like to support us that way. We would definitely appreciate it. Yeah. This episode in particular is a tribute, I would say, to not only one of the greats in music history. But the greats who support us on Patreon, because it's 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 episodes like this that without them it would not be possible. So please join them in supporting us on the Metal Sucks Podcast at ChuckandGodless.com. Indeed, so many good things, so many good things in this episode. Um, well, okay, so this will come out on September 26th, and on September 27th, 1986, a man by the name of Cliff Burton was killed in a bus wreck. And you might know him as the bass player for Metallica. So we figured that we couldn't let the 30-year anniversary of such a of such death go by without marking it in time. So we got a very special episode for you this week. Cliff Burton's passing, I mean, it's one thing we'd love to... I think it would be better to be celebrating a birthday rather than a death. It's typically day, what I do. You know, I, yeah. I, I rarely celebrate the anniversary of somebody's death. It's always on their birthday. Yeah, Chuck Skulldiner's birthday's coming up in a few months. I think we're going to be ready for that one. But but the thing is, is that Cliff Burton's passing maybe more than just about any other death that has happened to the metal community affected uh, a history in in just such an amazing and stark way. I mean, the, his passing is one of those great what ifs. What if he had survived? How would? How much different would? everything be i mean it's um it's uh uh it's a tragic event of course it was a bus accident in sweden or switzerland i can't remember somewhere like that and uh uh yeah it's it's still sad to this day it still bumps people out and for those who knew him um uh, best we decided that we had to find the one person who knew him better than anybody else and uh, and that was his father, uh, Ray Burton. And uh, we're very, very uh, honored that he was willing to uh, speak with us about his son uh, on this uh, really tragic anniversary. And, you know, the guy's what? He's 93 years old, I think now. Uh, and still, 
I like totally with it. I hope I have my uh, my, my brain is together as uh, Ray does at his age, man, because uh, he, he's an awesome guy. We get to talk to him a lot about his son, a lot about his history. He's got memories from all of that stuff, you know, and still is pretty current with the guys from Metallica these days. So he's uh, it's very interesting to hear his perspective on what what his or who his son was. And also, you know, kind of talk about what he he had hoped he could be. But he also is, I don't know, he has a way of, I don't know, like couching it in a way that it just doesn't, it's not as painful. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel as a fan, uh, I took this death harder than his father did in some ways because his father was resigned to so many different uh, things with another another son who had passed away and somebody, you know like there's so many things that had happened that he seemed to like keep going forward like keep going for and i remember just when this happened i was devastated you know like uh, i couldn't believe this was uh, this was going on because i had just found metallica at that point you know this was 1986 i was 12 ish <laughs> like right around that age and i had just discovered metallica at that point and man, you know, it was tragic, you know, tragic yeah. because I just couldn't believe what not only what that what Metallica was at that point when you're talking about Master of Puppets and you're talking about Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All, those albums in particular. But you're also talking about what that man did as a bass player was something no other bass player had done at that point. And it and was incredible. I, yeah. And and on that point, the, the second person that we we're having on the episode today is the person who probably knows more about the history of Cliff Burton and the history of Metallica than probably just about anybody else on earth besides the players themselves and and that's the author Joel McIver uh, his uh, uh, book uh, biography about Cliff Burton to live is to die is about to be reissued and uh, so we, we had to have him back he was with us on the uh, the Slayer Repentless uh, mm-hmm. episode uh, uh, last year so it was really uh, 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 honored as well that that he was willing to 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 come and join us for this episode and, you know when you think about like i mean when we first started talking about this episode these were the two people that i wanted more than anybody else to speak with and and i was very very happy that they were both willing to do so you know and admittedly we did try to reach out to metallica camp the metallica camp but uh they're you know they couldn't eh, we don't even get into why or they're what they're hardwired man they're uh, hardwired. They, they got stuff going on to say the least <laughs> uh you know a little bit busy apparently but I think uh, I think the two gentlemen that we have on for this episode will be more than a fitting tribute to uh, none other than Cliff Burton. So, yeah, yeah very good so stuff. How would I, what, what, what was it? How did you hear about Metallica? What was it that that turned you on to them? Well, you know, it was because um, I probably my gateway into metal uh, was Anthrax, actually, more than anything else. Anthrax was the band that I kind of discovered and it was really um uh shoplifting more than anything else is what is what got me into it is i had this thing uh, where i was a shoplifter at that point and we had a local kmart and they had those tapes remember the tapes with the long plastic things on them you know yeah. they had those uh, those fucking things and i could stuff like three or four of those in my pants and get the hell out the door with them and i did it by cover so my first my first theft was uh iron maiden uh, uh there's uh, was it oh, damn it number was it number of the beast 
I think it was, I think it was, or no, it was um, somewhere in time. Uh, I think it was somewhere in time. I think it was uh, Among the Living, and I think it was uh, Ride the Lightning were the, were the three like first ones that I that I had ripped off or something like that. And that's how I kind of discovered metal in the first place, and I just got addicted to it after that. And awesome. you know, I actually did buy Master of Puppets, and I have bought Master of Puppets about six times since then because I've worn my tape out like four or five times, <laughs> lost a CD or two. But my real introduction was probably Ride the Lightning, and yeah, it was via via almost getting uh, you know kicked out of Kmart for well, theft. I just like to say, if Lars Ulrich is listening to this, Lars, I ne- have never stolen any of Metallica's music. <laughs> I have always purchased all of it in every format. Uh, no, not not me. No, I, I made sure that I was. Uh, I ripped off a bunch of stuff at that point. Yeah, yeah, I was a. Uh, I was a bad kid, bad, bad oh. kid, you know, but <laughs> what are you going to do, man? <clears throat> so, so Anthrax was the album that you went, it clicks, but Ride the Lightning was right behind there? Well, Ride the Lightning was the, like, those records were the ones that, that, that kind of set me up. Uh, you know, then I had Slayer and a few others that like after that, that I really, you know, and that's why that's still my core to this day, you know, like it's, I can't get around uh get around even those records for that matter you know what i mean it's like uh you just can't you can't miss it was it which one was it was um uh among uh, no it wasn't among the living it was i guess at that point it was spreading the disease because it was like 1986 ish yeah yeah it was like it was early 1986 like it was i, 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 I yeah I wanted to look up like what when did Chernobyl happen because I'm convinced that some sort of traumatic global occurrence must have happened to be able to spit out Master of Puppets and Rain and Blood within a few months of each other. Right, right. That's that's that those are the number 1 and number 2 greatest metal albums of all time. There's just no way in the world that you could that that, that I mean it's unimaginable that they come out so close to each other. Yeah. Oh, I know. And well, and then you, well, there's, there's just so many of them that are all, that are all right in there, man. And I mean, mm-hmm. that, and that's why, like, what I'm thinking about, I'm like, it's all kind of a blur because I remember just gathering so much, so much at that point. Like, cause I think in 86 was, 86 was, uh, Master of Puppets. I think that's when Somewhere in Time came out. I think Power Slave was the one that I got from, from Maiden, uh, my first, my first thievery, if I remember right. And then, like, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son came out in 88, and, like, they just kind of po- compiled on each other, like, the, all these great albums that were all hitting at the same time and some amazing stuff. And then they were, but what I liked about it was they were all different. Like, you had the thrash metal thing that was happening, so you'd get, you got some of that East Coast thrash with Anthrax, you get some of that West Coast thrash with Metallica, then you had this British fucking thing with Iron Maiden, and then you had, what the fuck is Slayer? Slayer just kicks everybody's ass. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, th- yeah, it was just so much great metal that was coming out at that point. There was this guy that I knew who was a few years older than I was. And uh, uh, but he was my my transition guide from uh, uh, from the hair rock, which I just touched on so briefly. Yeah. And t- same way. into. Yeah. Into. 
the heavier stuff. He led the way. Um, he, he was, uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but he was gay. But now when I look back on it, I'm completely bummed because the dude never hit on me. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I get it. I'm not there good looking or anything, but, you know, that, you know, that, that would have been at least been able to, you know, have that for my confidence. But I didn't have that for my confidence. But the guy, like, had the poster from Garage Days up on his wall. And, you know, that was like a, uh, that, that image of that fisheye lens and, you know, they're mm, all looking kind of yeah. crazy. I was like, well, that's, that's kind of cool. I wonder what that is. And he said, uh, you know, I saw Metallica and I would go to the video store. This is the video store that got trounced when Blockbuster opened up a few feet away. Um, they had like a handful of videos that looked, they were like always out. You could never rent them and they were always like dangerous looking. And one was, uh, Faces of Death, of course. And of another course. one of those was Cliff Amal, which in the reason it looked dangerous was it wasn't like an official version. It looked like it was a VHS tape that they must have dubbed off of somebody. Yeah, yeah. And they rented it out. And I finally got a hold of it. And that was my introduction to Metallica. Really terrible camera, really terrible sound, but there was something about it. I mean, you can watch that now on YouTube, and I did just recently. It's amazing to watch now, but like you got to understand, like in the vacuum that was music that there was something about that that you know that spoke to millions of people yeah but uh yeah. and cliff you gotta understand was a huge part of that when you listen to kill them all you're listening to almost pre-cliff metallica you know it's, well, you it's are good but it's, to, you are listening to pre-cliff really i mean in yeah the end, yeah yeah, and and you know, because he didn't he didn't have any real contribution to their songwriting at that point. Not much. It wasn't until Ride the Lightning, and that's when, when in my eyes, when Metallica became the monstrous beast of the metal world. Yeah, and that was Cliff's contribution. And so, you know, it, it it's one of those things where what if if Cliff had survived, would the Black Album have happened? I don't think so. I don't think it would have. I don't think he would have allowed the album to get done what it is but at the same time you know cliff was the one who was you know, more than willing to do fade to black and you know some of their other you know a little bit more popular stuff escape you know yeah that, yeah. that stuff um he was willing to do that and and so maybe it would have happened but i i just don't think that that album would have been of as stripped down and simple as it was Cliff's contribution to Metallica was making everything so much more fleshed out. And you can hear that from that transition from Kill 'em All to Ride the Lightning. Oh, yeah. And you can still yeah. have that influence on, on Injustice for All, you know, because that was just practically weeks after he passed away. Yeah, because, I mean, that was a, they were still in that headspace for the most part, you know, and that's it's yeah. just kind of the mindset that they were in. And then it seemed like a complete, you know, 180 that they did on the black record that came from that let's do an eight minute you know a instrumental song that's the lead is the bass guitar you know let's do let's do that uh you know let, let's forget that and let's do these three minute songs and it's yeah it just took a completely different turn versus that but, yeah you know in in 86 like if you were a thrash metal fan like you go to school because that's what we all we were all too young at that point right so you go to school there's nobody else in your school who's a metal fan there's no, no uh, not, not a thrash fan you are alone right and so like the only thing that really gave you 
like a jolt to know that you were part of a community. There was no internet. You know, there, there, you might have subscribed to a newsletter or a fanzine, something like that. But really what it was was when you would be, you know, be at the mall or uh, walking down the street or in the guitar shop or whatever it was. And you'd see somebody wearing a Metallica t-shirt. You get lucky and see somebody. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And you just had that knowing smile. And if you're not wearing one, too, they didn't. They just thought you were no another idea. asshole. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. No, I mean, and that was the, the, until I would say that then that was the case probably until like, you know, when Headbangers Ball came around, which was what, 87, 88, something like that. And, yeah. you know, that's when you started to see a little bit bigger and started growing a little bit more. But I also come and from, you, I, I come from you, like the San Antonio area. So that there's also, a, I mean, that, that place is fucking metal as fuck. <laughs> so there's like, there, there's like always been kind of metal heads around that area. And, you know, it, it, but that I did not look like one of those guys, like at all. I remember when I did have my first Metallica t-shirt and I, I had to turn it inside out <laughs> at school and I think I had to even turn like a Def Leppard t-shirt inside out. It was like, what the fuck? Oh, Are you man. kidding me? Because uh, I was a big Def Leppard fan. I don't know if anybody knows that. But 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 still, you know, it's it's. I just remember that all taking place like fourth grade, <laughs> you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Like, it's like, oh, man. And we were, we were loners at that point. You know, there just wasn't this other this other culture. There wasn't anybody there. And I kind of chose to keep it quiet. Like, I didn't I didn't put it on the outside. For a long time, you know, it was funny because when a, a lot of people were like, well, wait a minute, when, you know, the old high school buddies, I was since I do my radio show now, they're like, we never knew you were a metalhead. I'm like, dude, that's like when I was ROTC, that's like all I fucking listened to, man, was Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Metallica and Slayer. It's like, that's all I fucking listened to like forever. But then I'd sing Barbershop. Nobody would have any idea. You know, so <laughs> so it was like this weird sort of closeted thing that I always had because you know, it was much easier to run the course of life without dealing with the fucking metal bullshit. You know, it was, uh, local, it was such a weird time. The local high school had uh, a radio station at it, which I lived at that radio station when I was in high school. But when I was in middle school, they had WSDP in the in the Michigan area. If you're in there, you know that radio station. I'm sure it's a little 200 watt dinky thing, but um, they had on Friday afternoons they had a metal show, and they and, and uh, uh, Kim, who was the host, she'd play. You know, uh, uh, Lord Tracy and White Snake, but then she would sneak in heavier stuff mm-hmm. like Death Angel and nice. and uh, you know all that sort of thing. It was like, oh, I live for those tunes. So it's like all I wanted to do, my whole entire entire goal in life was to take over that radio show when Kim graduated, and that, that's what I got to do. So it was like, and then it was like. I'll play Lord Tracy's Piranha, but I am not playing White Snake anymore. This is heavy stuff. We're playing Slayer, playing Megadeth, and then the death metal started coming. It was like, ah, oh, this is great, you know. But that was that whole transition being there while it was happening. It was, it was, it was just awesome. And and at least having that station in the area to kind of form a little bit of community yeah. uh, in the metal world uh, in, in the, the metro Detroit area that was really helpful to us I felt and, and uh, you know helped the shows and their local bands and you know all that sort of thing and it just exploded so fast and it was so intense and was so much fun and thank goodness for Cliff Burton who was instrumental in making that happen for all. Oh yeah, well I mean, dude, it was the I remember because in Texas, like in in the San Antonio area, like I said, where I'm from, there is a there still is a station called ninety nine five Kiss, 
And that station is, I grew up listening to that station and a, and a jock that I credit as being like the reason that I'm, I have a, a, I became a DJ is, you know, the godfather of, of rock and roll, man. His name is Joe Anthony. And this guy, you know, was the overnight dude there because I was a late night kind of kid. I always stayed up. My mom worked nights and shit. So I'd stay up till three, four in the morning, listen to him play, you know, all this rush and triumph and UFO and all this, all this crazy fucking rock and roll that you never hear during the day. Right. I just remember calling this dude over and over and over and over and over again, begging him to play Metallica, begging him to put Metallica on the radio, begging him to put it on. And he, they, and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't touch it for the longest time. You would never get it. And I remember the first time, the first time I got him to fucking play Metallica. It was amazing. I think it was like, it was 1980. Yeah, it was 1986. I think, I think it might've been actually, it might even correspond with the, with the death here, you know? Honestly, uh, and I think, uh, oh, dude, it was just such an amazing moment to finally hear, like, (laughs) one of your favorite bands on the fucking radio that had never been on the radio, and I want to say, I think he played For Whom the Bell Tolls. You know, I was like, oh, my God, what the bullshit happened? Just freaking the fuck out, because it finally felt like it was there. The, the, yeah. the extreme was there, you know, it wasn't, you know, cause UFO and triumph are not Metallica and death angel and anthrax, you know, it's not quite the same. So to kind of finally get that there, it was like, Oh, so good. So good. So and good. I, I think that, that, you know, it's so difficult to explain that. I think to people now they, they, you know, the Metallica so much of their legacy really is just wrapped up in that black album for some people. And, and it's too bad because you got to understand that like the history of Metallica in some ways is, the history of metal, certainly of thrash metal. And it's little things like that story that you just told that just let all of us know that we were on the verge of something. Yeah. We didn't know what, but it was going to be awesome. And, and wow, you know, 30 years later, um, it has been. Well, let's uh, let's get into our discussion with uh, Joel McIver and, uh, and, and get a little more in-depth on uh, on the details of Cliff and more about what he meant to not just uh, not just us personally, but but really to music in general and the the world of metal. So let's uh, talk to Joel McIver on the Metal Sucks podcast. You know, like, like it's tough to like for us old parts to realize, but there are so many Metallica fans who weren't even born when Cliff Burton died. Can you yeah. give people a quick like synopsis as to why Cliff was so important to those first three Metallica albums? He was like the sort of the, the booster rocket, right? You know, the first stage. Uh, he gave them an incredible amount of solidity and sort of musical education and and uh, a kind of a no compromise attitude and courage um, and a lot of that stuff came from the other guys as well, in particular James uh, and Dave in the early days but but Cliff was slightly older than them. he was kind of like a big brother figure um, and you know he, he he played like a demon on stage, but he played with great um, great dexterity and great musical education. He was very informed. So I think if you, if you imagine being a bunch of young punks who can play a bit, you know, to have a guy like that join your band who's very, very educated and very powerful in his personality 
is very useful, right? It, it must really, really sort of help you, help you gain courage and help you take the steps forward that you need. Um, and I think that was his role, really, uh, it, it, encouraging as much as musical, right? He was kind of a stronger guy than they were at the time. Well, and they were doing. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, and he was doing stuff musically that you know not only the metal world hadn't seen, but even uh, just in the con- uh, context of those records, w- yeah. w- was just unheard of. You know, whether you're talking about Anesthesia or Orion or things like that, that were just what the hell is that all about? You know. So I mean, his whole we're familiar now, aren't we all, with the idea of progressive metal and progressive mm-hmm. thrash metal and so on, um, and. Back then, you did have people like Celtic Frost with opera singers, and you had Queen's Rice, um, and a couple of other great, great experimental bands. But you didn't have a, a, a sort of a, a proper thrash metal band who also threw in little classical licks um, and the sort of the very uh, unusual arrangement that went into songs like Orion. Um, and that was all Cliff, you know. And the other guys really, uh, uh, their their minds were open to all that stuff. You know, look at Justice, the the the, the uh, logical sort of conclusion to their progressive songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that sprang from Cliff, definitely. I think he was, it, it might have been like having a teacher in the band, you know, a guy, a guy who, who just wanted to, to, to pass on his knowledge. It, it would have been really interesting. I was only 15 when Cliff died, you know, I've got to confess, I never got to see him, never got to meet him. Um, but it, it would have been uh, would have been a hell of a thing. We're lucky that there's some video. I'm so glad that they put out the Cliff and Moore VHS when they did, mm. um, which yeah. is subsequently made to DVD. It's a really good document. Um, and I can't believe it's 30 years, as you said earlier. You know, I mean, there are people who weren't born uh, when he died who aren't even young anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that make us? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. See, I'm I'm surprised to hear that like the musicianship came from Cliff because. He's the bass player. It's unusual, isn't it? So he was also a guitar player. Kirk told me uh, that Cliff would spend a lot of time when they roomed together in hotels playing playing the guitar. Um, so and he, but he he was one of those guys. You know, you can look at Les Claypool, or you can look at Steve Harris, or you can look at um, Jaco Pastorius. Th- these are bass players who happen to land on the bass as their sort of vehicle for expression, but they would have been equally fluent and, and talented on whatever instrument they chose. Uh, bass players like that don't come along very often, and they definitely don't clung, come along very often in heavy metal. Um, and I think it's a measure of Cliff's seniority within the band that they gave him an entire track on the first album for, for a bass solo. <laughs> yeah. What other album has that, you know, right. in metal? Well, and that's a, it was funny because a friend of mine who is a guitar player, he couldn't believe when I told him that Orion was entirely a, a bass, was pretty much a bass solo, the entire thing. He's like, no, 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 it's a mix. It goes back and forth between guitar and bass. I'm like, no, the entire thing is Cliff Burton. <laughs> and he couldn't, he's like, had to go back and look it up and like, and, and check it out, watch the videos and, and, and could not believe it when I told him that because it was after, uh, I guess, Through the Never came out. And right. uh, and Trio did it as that last as a closing track, and could not believe that that was an entire bass thing. And I'm like, you went 30 years and you had no idea you didn't you didn't realize this? How is that possible? I'm like, that's all. Well, that. no, I've seen I've seen this happen. So I was talking to Alex Webster of Cannibal Corpse, you know, the the biggest Cliff Burton fan on the planet, and I said to him a while ago, you know, that final solo in Orion that kind of goes that's a bass solo not a guitar solo and he said no no it's not it's clearly a guitar solo <laughs> and then he saw Trujillo playing it live yeah and uh Kirk told me again that Kirk actually wrote that part of the solo it, it was intended to be 
a guitar solo. But for some reason, Kirk was unable to attend the recording session uh, at Sweet Silence on that day. So Cliff just did it on the bass, uh, which is how it happened. It was just one of those last minute uh, decisions. That's but it's amazing. very well produced. So it sounds kind of like a treated guitar. Yeah. Um, but when you listen to it, I mean, the, the finger style dexterity that Cliff had is, is nuts. And a, a funny story I always like to tell is that uh, he, I can't remember who told me this. It would have been one of his ex-buddies. You know how he played with his fingers and his, he plucked with his first two fingers, but his little finger, his pinky, was kind of dangling down. Um, that was That's because he got a fish hook caught in the tendon of that finger when he was a kid. And uh, that finger was kind of frozen and didn't move very well. So it kind of hung down. And if you watch any other finger-style bass play, you'll notice that that doesn't happen. They just use their first two fingers. And um, that was a kind of identifiable thing. Only his ring finger is kind of tucked up under his hand. And that, that, that's probably only of interest to bass players. But uh, it's a funny thing that uh, <laughs> I always amuse me about Cliff's, Cliff's style. Oh, he's had his pinky out, you know. It's sophisticated that way. <laughs> yeah, like drinking yeah. a cup of tea like English people do. Mm-hmm. English style. Exactly. When I think about that Kill 'Em All lineup of Metallica, yeah. it it seems like then the musicians in the band would have been Cliff and Dave more than the oh, other I agree. two. Yeah, yeah. Mustaine was so, a, was a was a great great guitar player, definitely. Was Even there, at an early age. Yeah. So was there a um, I you know I guess because Kirk came in so quickly, there wasn't a chance to yeah. kind of mourn the loss of of Dave and Metallica for Cliff. But did he? Do, do you think that there was something um, that he felt was missing because he was being left alone for a moment, at least as the only true musician in Metallica? Well, no, Kirk, Kirk was a very advanced musician too, um, and to be honest with you, they'd come along in such leaps and bounds. I think the gap in the musicianship probably wasn't as 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 obvious as it, as it had been in the very early days um hey it's a good question dave i think dave was he, he dave's was was a very uh uh he wasn't a trained musician but he was a very capable musician mm. but i think his spirit and his you know fuck everything let's play faster and harder that was where he really inspired metallica you know mm. um i did i did this book a few years ago called the, the 100 greatest metal guitarists and um i put mustaine at number one and it, it caused quite a lot of um, <laughs> quite a lot of hatred to be directed at me by email I from very. Can imagine, people. yeah. <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of love as well. A lot of people who play the guitar fully understood that. And my rationale was that because Mustaine pushed James and Lars to play faster and heavier, that therefore he played a pivotal role in the invention of thrash metal, mm. which that you know, which make, makes him more than just a good guitar player. It makes him a, a historically influential one. So that's. That sort of sums up where I where I see Dave in the lineup. I would love to have seen the the, the Dave and Cliff lineup together for those few short months in '83. Uh, that that would have been something. No kidding, right? Oh God, couldn't even oh, imagine yeah. seeing that. You know, that uh, mind blowing. Absolutely. Mm. Maybe well, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I I quite enjoyed seeing seeing uh, uh, Mustang play with Metallica at that uh, 30th anniversary thing they did. I thought that was. Uh, that was good. It's good to see them share a stage. Yeah, we're we're waiting for the the uh, Mustaine and Newstead to come back. We that's that's so, that's the rumor. I'm getting. I want to get it started now. So I, to to Metallica. Uh, well, isn't, yeah, isn't yeah. There supposed to be something going on, isn't there? They're, they're, yeah, Mustaine and Newstead are, are, uh, have uh-huh. been hinting that something. Well, that was the story. Was that Newstead said something hinted at some kind of collaboration? No, as as Metallica and Newstead might be doing something. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, and I and that and so what we're starting is is that it's actually a collaboration between uh, between Dave, uh, Jason, and the rest of Metallica all together. Like it's like going to be a festival they're gig. Gonna play, they're going to play the power metal demo. From start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's all Pantera covers. It's going to be great. <laughs> With a little dash of killing is my business. There you go. <laughs> uh, Joe, we talked to, to uh, Cliff's father, Ray. Uh, uh, one of the things excellent. that... Um, yeah, that he was saying that I thought was really interesting was this idea that although the success of Metallica happened very quickly, they caught on really quickly once Kill 'Em All kind of came out. At the same time, the massive success of Metallica really didn't come along until Cliff had passed. And I thought that was, it's almost interesting to think about that, like how much he missed. It's awful, really. I mean, I, I, I did a book not long ago about randy rhodes and there are there are parallels uh, mm. in his life story and cliffs because they both recorded a couple of incredibly influential records which people love listening to to this day and just as it was about to become massive for them they lost their lives in yeah. completely pointless ways that could have been avoided um it's an awful it's awful man i mean as for ray i mean you got to remember cliff's older brother scott died as well yeah we talked to him about that as well mm. right so and you know, and obviously, he, you know, he lost his wife a few years ago, too. So, so he's, he's, you know, he's, he's seen a lot of tragedy in his life. But to lose his two sons at that age, I, I can't imagine it, man. You know, I, I, I'm a dad, and I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure you, you can't quite imagine that kind of thing. So, yeah, the, the, the size of the tragedy is, uh, is hard to express, actually. Well, and it's, a, I guess it's really strange to think when, you know, any kind of mega thing that is Metallica you know, yeah. to know that the foundation is built with different personnel than who is reaping the benefit now. It, it, I mean, obviously, we can't say, oh, well, death is unfair, but it's it's really unfair. It's like, damn, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's just horribly random, isn't it? You know, I mean, there's no I, I spoke to well, while we're talking about Cliff's death and, and the, the coach crash for the book I wrote. I, I tracked down um, one of the first guys at the scene who was um, a reporter or a photographer, I can't remember actually, for the local newspaper. And he was sent by the paper to cover the uh, accident. But when he got there, the bus had been picked up, uh, sort of righted, put on it, put on its wheels again, and close body had been removed. And so he, he, he didn't quite witness the, the actual event, but he saw the aftermath, you know, and he, he swears blind that there was no black ice on that road. Um, uh, you know, as, as do uh, quite a, a couple of other local people that I spoke to. And it's just a, it's a mystery, really, that won't be solved. I mean, these, you know, road accidents happen everywhere, every day on the planet, and no one really knows why or how. And in the subsequent legal, you know, police proceedings, the driver was permitted to go free. He's never been tracked down. I asked the guys at uh, Music for Nations, you know, the English record label that distributed Metallica mm. stuff, mm-hmm. uh, if, they would, if they would tell me who that guy was. They wouldn't, and I respect that. Actually, after all these years, I don't think that's unreasonable. I would love to have spoken to him, the driver, and said, look, man, no one's pissed off at you. We don't have to reveal your identity, but I would, be, I would like to know very much what happened that day. Why did yeah. the bus flip over? What happened, you know? Um, he almost but, definitely yeah. must have fallen asleep. I mean, he must have. I mean, he, and then he woke up, he swerves, and the bus is on its side. Or, or he just fucked up, you know? I mean, the bus just, you know, the, the wheels of the bus just slipped slightly off the road, you know? That, that could happen to anyone who, who wasn't paying attention for a second, even if they didn't fully fall asleep. Yeah. So, so it's, it, you know, I wasn't really able to bring any new light on it other than to establish that it's not really sure what happened, you know, to reestablish that. And as I wrote in the book... Uh, the police department in that town have lost all the records. <laughs> mm, <laughs> they wrote oh. back to me and said, oh, I'm really sorry, but all the papers are gone. 
Oh, and the bus wasn't like one of those modern day Prevos. That was like a like a it was like a renovated uh, uh, city bus, bus, bus or something right? like that. Yeah. It was a so it was a British bus, which means that the layout is obviously all flipped around to the one that you guys would be familiar with. Yeah. And I believe it was it was a low budget thing. You know, it had been converted, so you had like bunks that were made of very cheap narrow uh, wood. You know, kind of mm-hmm. lightweight stuff. So so everything fell apart. In the, I mean, the the, the the tragedy is that Cliff was thrown through a window. Now, to to, to fall through a, a pane of glass uh, is is a it's, that's a very violent thing to happen, you know. Mm. Um, and I don't think anybody actually witnessed that happening, and they just noticed that it had happened. And to to tell this story after all these years and try not to just rehash it pointlessly is quite hard. But I I felt that when I wrote that book. I really wanted to serve the story as well as I could. And, yeah. you know, the main, the main, my main first generation research came from John Marshall, who was on the actual bus. And he gave me a massive interview, really, really talked in detail about the exact layout of what happened. And we got as close as I think anybody possibly can um, to revisiting the actual scene. Um, yeah. But whether we'll ever know any more about that, I just don't know. You know, it was just in too remote a location. It was, it's too long ago. Perhaps the, Perhaps the authorities didn't um, didn't investigate quite as forensically as they could as they would have done nowadays. Um, you know, it was a bit of a different era, perhaps. Are you suggesting that Lars did it? <laughs> <laughs> it's awful, really. You know, it's, it's a anyway, it's a sad old situation. But I mean, yeah. the, the book that I wrote, I I, I think celebrates uh, celebrates Cliff rather than lingers on the the, the, the sad thing that happened to him at the end. That was well, the I mean, it, I mean, and if nothing else, I mean, the the what we do have from him, the, the output that we do have is still incredible. Some of the you know. The landmark metal albums of all time. Yeah, you cannot deny those three records. I love them. You know, uh, the, you know, you know when you have albums that you've heard so much, you actually don't listen to them too many times because they're in your DNA. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, I like that with those three. Between the ages of I don't know. Uh, but you know, I, I sat down and I listened to it just uh, as we were kind of pre- preparing for this. I sat down, and I actually put the headphones on and listened to Master of Puppets again, and I hadn't done that in in you know uh, ten years. You know, and I hear yeah. it. I hear it all the time because I play it on my radio show or whatever. But yeah. I just don't ever uh, sit down and listen. And man, oh my god, such a beautiful. Record. Sounds fresh, doesn't it? You it know? does. Yeah. And a great thing to do if you really want to geek out is to isolate the tracks on YouTube and find and 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 listen to the isolated drum, bass, and guitar tracks. And you can hear what the what the guys are doing. And they were kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, they wrote that record in '85. Uh, Hetfield was what 22. Mm-hmm. Cliff was 24, and he was the oldest. And then they recorded it the following year. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I was that age, I was incapable of doing anything that was that was worth a damn, you know. And uh, and yet they did these records, and I'm very glad that they're celebrating that legacy now. So they're doing that massive repackage of the remaster of the album, uh, which will come out at some point. They've got uh, Matt Taylor to do that book, um, and they're talking. You know, they talk a lot. R- Rob Trujillo is great at, at, at keeping Cliff's legacy alive and, and expressing his respect for it. So I think they understand now that uh, that they have a a back catalogue that's really, really worth celebrating and really, really worth preserving. And, it, you know, it's a great gift. It really is. It's fantastic music. Part of that's also taking some uh, some cues from uh, from their, uh, I don't want to say contemporaries, but really, I guess they are, um, Iron Maiden, yeah. you know, doing sort of the same thing. It's like we're able to take stock and, you know, produce new music, but really understand that this is our legacy. Take care of your catalogue. I mean, they spent, totally. what was it, $8 million? Before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's either eight million or four million dollars that they to buy their masters from Electra, 
And uh, that was that was a, a good move because they're now able to do what the hell they want with it. And the last time I interviewed Lars, well, I don't know, about two years ago, I said, um, so you're in unchar- uncharted territory, really, for a metal band, aren't you? I mean, what? where do you go from here? What do you do? How much, how much control do you take? You know, I mean, it's all very well owning your masters and owning your own record company if you then fuck up the administration. I mean, it's not easy to do those things. Mm. That's why people sign up to record companies to do that kind of uh, admin work for them. And he said he, that, that, you know, they just sit down with their managers and they kind of brainstorm ideas and things to do and they're just doing it by instinct at this stage. But um, it seems to be, it seems to be going well. I mean, I say that, right? I lost a load of money on uh, those two uh, Orion and Moore festivals, didn't they? Hatfield came yeah. out and said they'd lost a ton of money. Through the Never didn't make its money back. Um, yeah. For sure, um, even Some Kind of Monster didn't make its money back. And that's like, what, 14 years old, that film now. So um, they haven't made an awful lot of money with the kind of extracurricular activities that they've done. But nonetheless, they go out there and they tour, you know, every three years, whatever it is, and they make $100 million gross. And that, that keeps the bank accounts taking over. But um it's a great, it's a, it, you know, it's a real industry. I've, I've said for ages that Metallica are the Led Zeppelin of our generation, but actually they're bigger than the Led Zeppelin of our mm, generation because they're doing agree. more. You know, they're, they, they're doing more and bigger and more more sort of ambitious things. And, um, I, I, you know, I love watching it and seeing seeing what happens. And uh, I don't know. I, th- I think they'll do another 10 years and then they'll call it a day. I don't know. You don't think so? You get used to that oh. lifestyle after a while. I think you gotta <laughs> you got to keep rolling with it. You know, and if they do another couple of festivals or anything, that's going to be, uh, they're going to have to keep tour until they're 95. I don't think, I don't think they will. What did you guys think of that, uh, that first single the, the other day? That oh, the out? Hardwired? Uh, it's, it's not bad. I, I, I feel, well, it's also one of those, I, I feel like, you know, with uh, with Death Magnetic, they're trying to throw back to Master of Puppets. With this, they're trying to throw yeah. back to Kill Em All. So they're yeah. trying to reference what they've done before and what's come in the past. So I think, it's, I find it interesting. And I don't, I, I've always known you know, never judge a Metallica album by one song. So I'm no. waiting. I'm waiting for the rest to hear to to really kind of make up my mind. But I I dug it overall. Yeah, it was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep I keep going back. Like every time a new album comes out, ever since the Black Album, I've been doing this. I keep going back, like to to the nipple to get <laughs> to get to get the milk. You know. Yeah. And uh, every time I say, ah, oh, that wasn't so good. You know, I think I'll just listen to Puppets from now on. But <laughs> no, each time I keep going back, and uh, that's yeah. the sign of a great band. I think you know they they might still surprise us. They just might. It it seems it's always seemed to me like the the bands that really make the mark are the ones that somehow were able to put out three incredible albums in a row. Metallica were able to put out four, five, and then put yeah. out this juggernaut of a, a you know of a of a a, a a big fraud on everybody that, that it somehow it worked. Everybody loves the Black Album, which is absolutely the, one of the worst albums of their career. And and I mean that's a unlike like anybody else to have five in a row like that. Yeah, I mean, who else has got yeah. that? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think I could name a good, a good few bands from the seventies and eighties that had a good run like that. But uh, nowadays you'd never get it. It can't be done. Oh yeah. No, forget yeah. it. It just and, doesn't and happen. To, to me, I think the part of the reason that those first four albums were so great is honestly, it's the influence of cliff on his influence on the first three and then the shadow of his influence which you can hear all over injustice for all yeah no I, I i couldn't agree more uh i think they were right to switch away from the super progressive approach uh of justice and and try and do the whole strip down thing for the black album i mean i'm not saying i love the black album because i don't there's a couple of good songs on there but you can't deny its presence you know it just kind of sits there and dominates um isn't it the best-selling album of the sound scan era 
I believe I so. I believe it is. Cars too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, who who could have predicted that in 1988 and 89? It's hilarious. Mm. But, um, I, you know, I, I, so the first book I wrote about Metallica, I wrote in 2003, and I was quite militant about some of the music that they had written in their later career. And I was saying, oh, it's not thrash. It's not good. And uh, now, with the benefit of, you know, 13 years of accrued wisdom and maturity, I think I was probably a little bit harsh, you know. I mean, they're, they're, it doesn't really matter what their albums are like. They go out live and they play the catalogue and it's great. Um, and a, a lot of bands are like that now. You know, you don't expect Slayer to outdo Rain and Blood every time they do a record. Although, actually, that's the wrong reference because we should really be talking about U2 or the Rolling Stones or the Foo Fighters or some giant band if we're talking about Metallica. True. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, I asked about the new record, the new, your reaction to the new single because I'm interested in what you think. But I, I'm the same. It sounds very much like a little retread of something that's, that's a bit old. I played it once, so, you know, I thought, okay, this is fine. Um, I hope that the a, stuff on the new album will be harder and faster. I'm sure it won't be, you know, but I'm, I'm still going to hope. <laughs> there's this girl that I knew in high school, and she was totally hot for, like, the first three, four years. I mean, totally hot. And then she got yeah. big, and then, but then after that, like, she... I don't know. It got a little, you know, she kind of let herself go for a while. She was trying, but not really. And then, and then, but just recently, like she's been really trying to get back into shape, but it's just not the same. I'm not sure she doesn't look happy to me. And I guess that's where I'm at with Metallica. I just want Metallica right. to be happy. Yeah, but see, I think it's, I, 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 I still think that they could be a different kind of hot, though. You know, so the thing is, is like it's a, it's a, they can still be hot, but it's just a different kind. It's not it's not going to be Master of Puppets hot. It's not going to be Justice yeah. for All hot, but it's going to be, be a happy hot. It's milfy hot. You know, it's something a little yeah. different. <laughs> it's going to be slightly warm. Yeah, exactly. But. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 I hear you. Look, you know that they're beyond criticism at this point. I genuinely believe that totally. they're so huge, you know, and you, you can enjoy it or you can kind of try and pick holes, but there's really no point. Um, and I've, I've done that many, many times in the books I've written, but now I'm at a point where I think I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, you know, we, we know where they've done well. We know where they've gone wrong. They pretty much admit where they've gone wrong. You know, you don't see them nowadays saying, "Oh yeah, Load was a great album." <laughs> right, right. You know, Re- Reload was our was our Led Zeppelin three. You know, they don't say those things. Yeah, they're kind of up there and say, "Yeah, okay, Saint Anger sucked in in some way." So I admire that about them. And uh, well, like you said, they yeah. also identify what was the the strong points of those. And you will still hear a song or two from that era, but they were the strong songs. You know, so you'll hear hear King Nothing from time to time in their in their live set because it yeah. was probably the best yeah. song that they did of that era. You know, so blows my mind. Do you remember a couple of years ago they allowed the fans to choose the set? Yeah, the set list on a website. Now mm-hmm. I thought that was great, and and I was expecting all the thrash stuff to be number one. I thought Disposable Heroes will be out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought Damage Incorporated, Dyer's Eve, and what was it? It was Enter Sandman and Master of Puppets. Totally. So they were completely vindicated by all those people who voted. I mean, you could argue that the older fans wouldn't have bothered voting, but nonetheless, the opportunity was there for us all to choose the set list. Um, and it, uh, they were overwhelmingly proven right, which kind of blew my mind. It kind of, uh, kind well, of shut me up a bit. Actually. Well, and it's, <laughs> a, it's the same thing. It's like it's the idea of how many people are Metallica fans that were not alive when Cliff was uh, w- w- before Cliff had passed away. So you know, you think about it, and uh, I've had this discussion about Pantera in the same way. It's like, well, well you know, reinventing the steel is the best record. It's like, well, how old are you? Oh, oh, twenty five. Mm-hmm. No, okay, that's what I get it. I understand. So I think it's the same thing with metallica it's that era that you grew up with 
and what was yours. I own and hold on to like nothing else, Justice and Master of Puppets, because that is those yeah. are the records that I discovered them with and and follow and went back, obviously. But that's what I own because that's my age and where I'm at. So I can that's also exactly. see why other people are, yeah. are different. Well, that's exactly the point. You know, it's um, I, uh, this quote is from Ross Halfin, the, the photographer. He he was asked once what his favorite albums were. And he said, whenever you're asked that question, think back to the records you were listening to when you were 16. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, music was everything to you. Um, unless you're, you're a, a millennial where things like games uh, and stuff are just as important to music. That's a whole different discussion. But for us, mm-hmm. music was, was everything. And... But it, it ceased to be after that because other things came came into play. So you have to respect the views of a, a 25-year-old who thinks that the first Trivium album was everything. Totally. Or a 13-year-old who thinks that the last Bring Me the Horizon album. You know, I'm, si- I'm sitting next to my 13-year-old daughter, as I say this, who loves Bring Me the Horizon. We're kind of laughing about it. Mm-hmm. But um, that's, <laughs> th- that, that's the music that, that, that twangs the heartstrings, you know, and, yeah. and, and makes, makes you want to jump around. And you just have to be tolerant about that. And I think with that tolerance comes an understanding that bands come and go and the ebb and flow and they run out of creative capital and they regain it. Um, you know, and all I can try and do from my point of view as someone who chronicles this stuff for a living is, is try and sort of lay it down and, and kind of get it uh, committed for posterity. Yeah, give and it a this record. Always sounds really, this sounds incredibly pretentious, but people like me are, are kind of, committing you know our, our culture for future generations so so that people can get a view of, of what really happened nowadays you know and um you do your best well it's, a, it's <laughs> a, well you got to provide that perspective because you know unfortunately there is never going to be another cliff burton you know and yeah, i only wish your book could have a sequel and and that's the thing is that it's it's uh, you know it will never the world will never know another cliff so yeah it's uh, we got to take what we can what we can get and try to keep that memory alive which is you know uh, unfortunately why, why, why we're doing this show as well so well it's you know I, all you can do at this point for someone is is provide some support for their family I think and I'm sure Ray and Cliff's sister Connie are taking comfort now 30 years later that so many people are taking the time to express what their feelings for Cliff you know and, and his music and uh, that's all you can do at this point just just try and try and comfort the ones who are left behind now.
first appearance on record by Cliff Burton himself, Anesthesia Pulling Teeth and Whiplash from Metallica, of course, on the Metal Sucks podcast, dude. Dude, when you heard that, when you heard that bass intro, I had never heard anything like that before. I mean, that that just blew my mind. Didn't know what the hell that, didn't know what to think of that. Yeah, well, I don't think I can remember ever hearing bass. Yeah, yeah, right? You're like, huh? What, what, what's the point? Oh, wow. What, what is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah, amazing, I so. mean, yeah, he he was a he was a third guitarist, you know, in yeah. so many ways. It's just, you know, I think that, you know, not everybody can be Cliff Burton, and I think there's a lot of, you know, we reflect on people who die prematurely, and we go, oh, they were so much better than they probably actually were. But I think there's definitely an exception with Cliff. I think that, you know, he, he took that instrument in a very short amount of time in his life to to being something that really, really mattered to the sound of that band. And, you know, if you if you think that And Justice For All is a little, eh, not quite there, it's because there's almost no bass to be found on that album. Well, you know? and, and you know, there's there's there there are people and musicians that that we've that we've lost over the years where you really when you hear their body of work that's either small, some of them have a large body of work, but you know that there's more there. You know that there is uh, there is stuff that was still to come. When you hear like the Shuldiners and you hear the Dime Bags and you hear like the Freddie Mercury's and you you know that that were really you know ahead of their time, genius type people. Blur- Burton is right there with the rest of them. You know, I mean, he is so advanced class that you can't you can't even put a finger on so many things that he's influenced since his death just by the two full records that he put out you know what he did on those two albums were was enough to inspire generations of people who play bass and and do things that that just you know you don't even realize it you know and, and that's what's kind of amazing about it so uh. i'm a i'm a i'm a huge fan of music biographies and i gotta tell you uh, Joel McIver's uh, To Live Is To Die, the Cliff Burton biography, is absolutely critical reading for anyone who claims to be a Metallica fan. you got to check this book out. It's just, you know, it's another one of those. He did the same thing with the uh, the Roots, Bloody Roots mm-hmm. uh, uh, book Max. that he wrote for Max. Yeah, and it's it, there's so much information about such an important time in the history of our music that... You know, it's like, oh, when you hear why things are the way they are and they sound the way they sound, it just gives it so much more depth. We talked a little while ago about the difference between the original and a master recording, you know, Mm -hmm. remastering recording. And you go, you know, it's kind of cool, but it's different. And it's kind of interesting to hear it in a whole new way. I love these biographies. I love Joel's biographies because they do just that. I know he's got a Metallica book as well. I haven't had a chance to read that, uh, but uh, I can personally vouch for the Cliff Burton biography, To Live Is To Die. Absolutely critical. You got to check that book out. Now, he wanted to get even closer to Cliff Burton uh, and examine his life uh, even a little bit more. So we thought, what better way to do so than to invite his father onto the show and what an honor, right? You know, just to be able to, to, to get to talk to Ray. That was such a cool, such a cool guy. And, you know, has lived through so many different things in his lifetime. But then also with, you know, the tragedy that happened to not only one son, but two that he had lost. And I, I hadn't realized that until I read Joel's biography. But Cliff Burton had an older brother who died 
suddenly of a brain aneurysm while Cliff was at school. He was, he was, you know, only like 12 or 13 or something like that when that happened. Imagine that your older brother who's only like 15, 16, your hero, whatever. Yeah, yeah, we talked to Ray about that during this interview, yeah, too. and so. I've never heard anybody talk to Ray about that, so it was really interesting to get the chance. Well, let's get into our interview with Ray Burton here on our Cliff Burton Tribute episode of the Metal Sucks Podcast. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are things in old Austin? Ah, doing well, doing well. You know, trying to trying to keep it cool a little bit down here in Texas. So, uh, well, I know how that can be. Such an honor to talk to you. You got to understand that that uh, you know you're the father of one of the most important people in the history of the music that we love, and and. Uh, you know, it's it. Uh, you've got an honorary seat there <laughs> in a genre of music that you probably had no idea <laughs> that you would ever be involved with, at least in this regard, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely true. I just had no, uh, I think of, uh, you know, 40 years or so ago that uh, this would, uh, I just had no idea that this kind of thing would be happening. And uh, I appreciate the... Uh, the, the people that uh, love Cliff and, and Cliff's music so much, I uh, and I'm uh, you know kind of uh, reaping the fame, so to speak, uh, of, that Cliff. Uh, it would be great if he were here to uh, to be enjoying this. He would uh, he would enjoy it very much and uh, and take it very humbly. It, uh, and he liked fans and uh, he would enjoy it very much. He always seemed, and you've uh, you've kind of said that before that he was a very humble individual. You know, he never considered himself a star or anything like that. Even oh, when Metallica wow. was on the rise, yeah, that's quite quite true. He just uh, he saw what uh, uh, the rock and roll uh, musicians before him that uh, how they just essentially went to hell in their uh, behavior. And uh, he just did not want to be a rock star. He uh, was uh, quite disciplined in many in many respects, and, um, and one of them was toward uh, the heavy drugs. He uh, alcohol was uh, was about as uh, far as he would go, and uh, so that that was a good thing, in my opinion. Do you think that Cliff had an influence on? the rest of the band and, and their ambitions? Well, yes. I, uh, From what I've heard now, now Cliff never... Uh, uh, we didn't discuss too much about uh, uh, the relationships with the band, but other uh, members of the band. But uh, their comments and uh, people that were uh, uh, crew members in that, uh, they uh, definitely said that Cliff had a, uh, a definite effect on them and... Uh, and then, and that's understandable because he uh, uh, he wanted his music to be a, a certain way, and he wanted to be in bands where he got along with uh, people. He didn't uh, like the uh, idea of conflict, and so uh, no, he was uh, he got along well with them. He would uh, occasionally make some comment about Lars and uh, 
but uh, Lars can be, uh, uh, from uh, what I've heard, can be kind of difficult. I've always gotten along great with uh, Lars. He, he's always kind of bring a smile to my face because he, Lars is kind of a character in the way, like most drummers are. And uh, <laughs> so uh, he, uh, but Cliff got along well with all of them. He, uh, particularly James and uh, and Kirk, he. Uh, uh, you know, hung out with them and uh, was really, uh, really enjoying being uh, a part of their uh, their group. Was he that way when he was a young young man uh, and younger boy? Uh, was he kind of friends with everybody or a loner or well, how no, did he fit he in? Was, no, he had always had friends. He was uh, there in the Castro Valley. He was uh, uh, he was. Uh, uh, not a leader, in the, but he just uh, always had friends. Uh, you know, from grammar school on, he uh, he just was a uh, uh, Cliff was an easygoing guy, but he he could be pretty uh, pretty on the mark if something really serious came up. And he, even as a very young child, at five and six years old, he could be uh, pretty uh, definite in what he wanted the. Uh, situation to be and he uh, stood up for it but he was uh, also very uh, in my observation very flexible in his uh, in his life he wasn't uh, rigid on things uh, and that uh, I think was uh, just his temperament he uh, was a pretty uh, pretty all-around guy he, uh, and he got a kick out of other uh, other uh, kids in in his school and in uh, humor wise and uh, and serious stuff. He uh, he did well in school. He was uh, lazy in some respects, but at the same time, he's one of those gifted kids that uh, uh, didn't crack a book but got uh, A's and B's. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lucky. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> man. I struggled to get it to the C. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Ray, I don't think that a lot of people realize that, I mean, you have experienced not only this incredible tragedy that now this is the 30th anniversary for, but you had uh, another son who had passed, uh, who was uh, Cliff's older brother, Scott. So uh-huh. I was curious as to how did that tragedy affect you and how did that affect Cliff, do you think? And how old was he when that happened? He was 13. And uh, to me, it uh, pretty much uh, uh, Cliff, uh, he probably would have done this anyway, but I think in the passing of uh, Scott, he, uh, you know, when I told him that uh, Scott had died, I had to go over the, we only lived about uh, 200 feet from the junior high school where uh, Cliff was in school, and I had to go over and get him out of class, and I told him what had happened, and the poor kid had just... Uh, he was absolutely beside himself, and so he uh, came home and talked briefly to his mother and me, and then he uh, decided he just wanted to go out and and walk and be by himself. and uh, And about an hour, hour and a half later, he came back, and uh, and uh, he was, uh, you know, himself, but he was really, uh, really crushed by it. But he didn't. Uh, stop him from, uh, uh, in my opinion, it probably prompted his uh, uh, question to his uh, mom and dad, uh, 
to uh, Jan and me that uh, it, uh, Mom and Dad, can you? Uh, I want to take up the guitar. I uh, I like the guitar uh, uh, playing that starts off in Barney Miller's uh, TV thing, and it's the bass guitar. And, uh, I don't know if you remember Barney Miller's uh, yeah. TV show. Uh, so we got a cheap guitar and a cheap amplifier and uh, and lessons and uh, and it was uh, just uh, uphill and uh, you know the, the rest is in um, it's uh, in the books and so forth. Mm-hmm. And speaking Did of Scott... books, that, that recent oh, uh... new book that's just coming out is uh, is really terrific by Matt Taylor. It's about just the, you know the one record uh, Master of Puppets, but. Okay. Terrific book, mm, coffee so, table. Excellent. <laughs> well, the thing I was going to ask you is, did did Scott's passing have an effect on you that you think changed uh, your relationship? What what your relationship was going to be with Cliff? No, it didn't, it didn't change a bit. It uh, it just was uh, one of those uh, very sad things that uh, probably hit Jan more than uh, me because. Uh, uh, none of our family, uh, had her family or my family, had had any kind of uh, of uh, aneurysms or uh, uh, that uh, affected Scott, and, uh, and uh, so it was something new. But Jan kind of uh, took a little uh, little kind of guilt trip there, and I tried to uh, said, Jan, it's uh, you know, it's not her. Particularly, in my opinion, a hereditary. It's one of those unfortunate things that uh, that uh, persons uh, have uh, have weaknesses, and Scott just happened to have one. And uh, well, there were indications nowadays. I think they would uh, the medical uh, improvement uh, from uh, when Scott died uh, in 1975. It, uh, the uh, the pediatrician uh, felt that. Uh, the headaches that Scott was uh, having, uh, and he tried to trace it down to what it possibly could be. But uh, after it happened, uh, uh, he uh, felt that that had uh, an awful lot to do. With the, in other words, the headaches that were occurring had a lot to do with the aneurysm. Yeah, it would have been an indicator or something to look a little deeper into it. Yeah, yeah. if they had a better technology. Mm. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Did going through that experience uh, help you a little bit when when Cliff's passing happened? Well, I just uh, I'm one of those uh, persons that uh, you know, kind of looks at life that uh, there are good things that happen to us and there are some things that are not so good, and that was just one of the unfortunate things of uh, in my life. I. I lost my oldest brother uh, uh, when I was only seven years old. Uh, was a race car driver here in Southern California, and uh, was killed in uh, in just practicing. Uh, the uh, steering pin broke, and he couldn't. He was doing uh, doing around a hundred miles per hour, and it, and he. Uh, so, in, in other words, the death of uh, uh, something that I. Uh, Learned uh, from and uh, uh, learned to handle uh, deaths in my family. It uh, it is just uh, one of those things, and we uh, we should not uh, uh, dwell on it. But uh, 
we still have our lives while we're uh, here on earth to, to live and try to live them the, uh, the way that I, uh, I always felt to live it, the way I feel uh, comfortable with and doesn't hurt anybody or myself. And it's got to feel amazing to know that, that your son touched so many people it is. in yeah. such a short period of time. Right. You know, we can only hope to, any of us can only hope to go, to reach as many people as he did and was able to do in, in, yeah. in his short time. Uh, he, he liked the, uh, as I said, he liked his schools and so the school kids and, and that, but he also, uh, uh, when he started performing, he, uh, he liked the fans. And there were some fans he uh, got kind of ticked off at, it, uh, mainly in Donington, uh, England, and them throwing clods and, and champagne bottles on the damn stage. <laughs> but I remember he came home one time, and they had played in McAllen, uh, Texas, down there in the southern tip of Texas, and uh, he he just loved the Mexican fans, uh, the Mexican kids. He said, boy, are they great fans. <laughs> he, <laughs> he said, well, really? <laughs> I don't know exactly. He didn't go, you know, go into detail about it, but he really liked them. <laughs> <laughs> Still are to this day, I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting the way that, like, like so Ray, I was watching Cliff Amal, rewatching Cliff Amal, uh yesterday because it's been years since the last time I watched it, and you know some of that footage is from um, April of 1986, you know, just weeks before the accident, and. Metallica, despite the fact that that they were touring the greatest album in metal history, they were still just opening up for Ozzy in you know theaters right. that now would be considered small. So, was there a sense of his fame at that point? Did or was it? Did all of this sort of happen after him? Yes, that, uh, I'm sure that happened. Uh, what it was, Chuck, is that it's just uh, it's one of those things that. Uh, Cliff, um, I, I can put it in his word. His word. Uh, Cliff knew he had uh, had talent, and uh, uh, but he wasn't uh, cocky about it. And uh, but he felt the music uh, that he was uh, uh, getting and playing with uh, James and uh, Kirk and Lars was uh, uh, was pretty good, and he was quite satisfied with it. it uh, and so the um, uh, he he just felt that uh, he was doing okay, and he was uh, of course his, his own musicianship. Uh, as I've said before, he uh, said uh, that he felt that if uh, things didn't go uh, where he couldn't make a living with Metallica, that he could be he had enough talent to be a studio musician. So that's a lot of confidence in your own ability, but at the same time, he, I've heard him say several times that there are a hundred kids out there in garages that play uh, the guitar as well as I can. So that was, uh, I think, a, a plus for Cliff. Um, that kind of uh, thinking uh, uh, toward yourself uh, also helps in uh, in everyday life that uh, you have that confidence about your own. Uh, uh, abilities and Cliff had a uh, had a degree of confidence. He, uh, but as I say, he wasn't cocky about it by any sense of the word. He was, <laughs> and he was kind of funny. I thought at, at times. 
it seemed like it just super easy going, but our personalities probably couldn't be more different. I tried to put myself in your shoes and, and I imagine like if that band goes on to, 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 to have the kind of success that Metallica has, I would just be almost bitter and angry with every album that gets sold because it's like you know my kid built that ship you know how are you yeah. why are you sailing it right in front of my house every day you know oh. well i i just uh, uh i i look at it uh, uh not so much uh at my uh, uh loss of something but uh, that uh i admire uh, james and lars and kirk for uh for carrying on all of these years they've uh, stayed together and uh, have uh, done a very good job uh, in uh, entertaining and that that's the business is entertaining and they have done absolutely a magnificent uh, job they've uh, they've had uh, two absolutely in my opinion marvelous managers and Cliff Bernstein and uh, Peter Minch uh, they just uh, couldn't ask for better, and Cliff was a, was just absolutely giddy when uh, they were, uh, those two guys picked the, the band up. He just said, "Oh boy, now we we got somebody that knows some idea about uh, uh, managing uh, a band." That uh, Johnny Z was a nice guy, but uh, he uh, just, uh, in, in Cliff's opinion, he left a lot to be desired. They had found somebody that could take them to the next level. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has has Metallica and those guys, I mean, has Cliff's work benefited you and Jan? In, in, as, I mean, has Metallica taken care of you guys? Do you, do you guys get, oh, like, the publishing and all very, that stuff that happens afterwards? Yeah, well, the, the setup was that, uh, I guess you'd call it a setup, but uh, uh, after Cliff died, uh, we got a... Um, a letter, and it's still here somewhere in the house, uh, uh, from uh, Q Prime and um, Peter Paterno, who is, who is the uh, uh, attorney for uh, Metallica here in L.A. And uh, the letter um, uh, said that uh, all royalties would go to uh, Jan and Ray Burton, and and. Uh, so I can't remember what else, but the main thing is, is yes, the uh, the royalties have been, uh, you know, coming my way for for quite quite some time. At times, I feel a little sad that this uh, wealth. And although Cliff was, uh, he could see things coming along. He felt that uh, they were doing well, and uh, he was uh, uh, told his mom and they that, uh, yeah, I'm going to buy you kids, uh, you two, a house when. Uh, this thing uh, gets going better, and uh, so uh, he had uh, an idea that uh, that the uh, band was uh, was going to be a success, and boy, was it ever! And it's awesome that he's been in in such a strange, odd way, you know, able to take care of you guys a little bit there as well. Yeah, we've we've been uh, very fortunate. I, uh, I've been able to put a food on the table for. <laughs>
you know, credit uh, uh, James, Lars, and uh, Kirk, and uh, and both uh, Jason and uh, Rob Trujillo. They all contributed, and uh, and I uh, am just kind of going along for the ride, so to speak. I, you know. <laughs> but they're enjoyable. As I mentioned before how enjoyable they are. Like we saw them. Um, uh, what was it, a week and a half ago, something like that, back there in uh, Minneapolis. And they're still, still enjoyable. They, uh, uh, particularly the, uh, uh, the encores, they, they did a fantastic job on the encore. And, uh, just, uh, a lot of, uh, they're just good, damn good entertainment. Uh, when I hear, uh, when I hear Rob play, uh, uh, was Orion is the one that I always loved from Cliff because it was you know it was primarily him and it, he uh, it's 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 a little bit different but you can hear it's just he's got so much put so much into it it's it's really impressive stuff that what what they can still do yes they can they uh, I uh, thought that you mentioned Orion in the, in the picture they made uh, motion motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, through the never, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. The uh, the final uh, song that they played was uh, Orion, and I thought the uh, uh, the rendition that they uh, did there for the uh, for the movie was uh, really good, and the uh, uh, the sound was great, and uh, it was uh, uh, knowing where the uh, the song came from and. And uh, being so close to that, it uh, it just uh, was a very very good feeling. It uh, gives you a good feeling, indeed, and, indeed. Uh, and good good memory of yeah. Cliff. Ray, we've read often about how much support you gave Cliff. Uh, you know, learning the instruments and buying him instruments and giving, getting him lessons and all that, and uh, and supporting him as he pursued music and. You know, obviously, the the rewards for that for everybody around the world is incalculable, and and will go on for for you know a century or more to go. So, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you did. I know you didn't know what it was going to come to, but what an awesome investment it's been. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Hopefully we have paid the right kind of tribute to uh, Cliff Burton on the 30th anniversary of his passing uh, here. September 27th, 1986 was the date of that bus racket for uh, Metallica and uh, uh, just a devastating loss for the metal community. 30th anniversary as we're recording this, if you're listening to it a year or two in the future, something like that. uh, uh, Just uh, always try to take a little bit of time out in the month of September to remember uh, uh, Cliff Burton. And I'll tell you, do something that you might not have done in a long time. Put on Master of Puppets and put on a pair of headphones. And don't don't be clicking around on the internet. Don't be looking at your phone. Put your headphones on and listen to that motherfucking album. And then tell me what you think about it, you know? And that right there, that shit, that changed my life. <laughs> For the better. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's it's been a lot you go for a while because it's been around for so long, you know, you hear these songs in the background sometime. And they keep, yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. But really, 
put on the headphones and give it a listen and, and really think about it, man. It's good. It's amazing it, stuff. Metallica changed the metal world with Master of Puppets because everybody loved Ride the Lightning. But with Master of Puppets, the, the bar was raised so high that everybody else was just struggling to find a way to produce something that could sonically compare. And nobody did. Nobody was able to do it. And that's okay. But it was it was that effort that produced, I believe, so many great albums from 1986 through, what, 1990, 91. It wasn't until Metallica uh, put out the Black Album and everybody thought, and their major labels that had signed them thought, that they needed to make an album that sounded like the Black Album yep. that completely decimated metal from the 90s. So... Um, you know, it's a uh, it's a it's a huge huge tribute uh, to to Cliff that he almost single handedly uh, changed uh, changed an entire genre. And, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it, there's Tony Iommi and, uh, uh, and and there's there's Cliff Burton and you know there's Max Cavalera. I mean, who else do you put up on that like Mount Rushmore metal? I, I I don't know who else you could. Well, thank you to Ray Burton and Joel McIver for being our guests this week, and rest in peace, ah, Cliff Burton. Man. Make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast and all those uh, meaningful places and all that stuff. You know where to get us, and of course, MetalSucks.net every single Monday. Uh, click on the podcast tab at the top, and you can find all of our old shows. We appreciate you going back and listening to it, and you can find us on social media. I'm at Bearded Ape. I am at Godless Speaks, Godless Speaks on Facebook and Spotify. On Instagram at Chuck and Godless and ChuckandGodless.com is our Patreon. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Yes, all of yeah, uh, all of your attention and everything else, man. You've been great. So Yeah, and I was gonna say if anybody else has got like a really cool like uh you know story from you know how they were turned on to Metallica, how they were turned on to Cliff Burton. You know, either come on to uh, chuckandgodless.com and, and post, or uh, uh, you know, certainly invited to my Facebook page, Godless Speaks. Uh, would love to hear other people's experiences and and how similar, or different, especially if you came from a different era of the Metallica career, and then your your you know personal like how you were turned on to uh, Cliff Burton's greatness. Mm, indeed. All right. Till next week. I am Chuck. I'm Godless. And this is another Metal Sucks podcast.
You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.